Well, good morning again. I'm excited to look at this passage of Scripture with you. As you heard it read, you're probably thinking to yourself, what a classic Christmas text. This is, out of all the Christmas texts, this is one of the most classic out of all of them. And uh, I wonder if you've experienced this before where there's a text that you maybe have grown up hearing over and over again, and you got the basic sense of it, but you maybe never really understood it, like in its detail and in its depth. And I think that that's one of the blessings of, of receiving a preached word on a text like this is you're going to get to be able to see some of the details and how they fit together. My hope is that this classic text will come alive in some fresh ways uh, for you this morning. It's kind of like hearing Psalm 23. You know, you've heard it so much through the years in these rhythms, but I hope that this will come alive and it'll be understood more deeply and that it will have a nourishing effect on your faith because this is not just meant to be, hey, let's hear a sentimental text. Like, this is actually meant to be fuel for our faith. And um, it's important for us because we often lose heart. We often lose heart because we are faced with imperfections all around us. We're constantly aware of things being not the way that they're supposed to be. And the relationships around us, and even in our own hearts, perhaps even mostly in our own hearts, things are not the way they're meant to be. We feel it. Um, because we see an unrest, we feel an unrest in ourselves, kind of a restlessness, such a lack of sustained peace. It's important to have hope that this text is giving us because the reality is, is a lot of us grieve the fact that our joys, and they can be sweet, are so often just short-lived. Have you noticed that? Like before you're really starting to enjoy something, it's gone. <laughs> you know, it just, it just escapes you. It's like a passing shadow. And we're longing for there to be perfection. We're longing for them, for there to be rest and peace. We're longing for there to be sustained joy. And a text like this is going to point us to the realities that make those things become a reality. All the things that our hearts are longing for, in a sense, embedded in the text before us this morning. And if you were to ask me, Pastor Brandon, what's the burden? Besides all the details, what's the burden of the text this morning? Like, what's God wanting to get done in my heart? I would say, God wants to give you hope. God wants to give you hope. That's why this text exists in the Bible, because he wants to give you hope. And I think you'll see that as it unfolds. But that's his burden to get done this morning. And so I can't make that happen. So let's pray that God would make that happen in our hearts. Father, it is such a privilege to bring your word this morning and to have spent time this week meditating on this classic Christian text of prophecy. And I pray, Lord, since it's your burden that your people have hope and even overflow in hope and are fueled by hope, oh God of hope, I pray that you would grant it this morning, that you would allow eyes to see and ears to hear your promise and your plan and even feel your passion in this text in such a way that it would cause hope, fresh hope, to rise up in every single heart here. Lord, speak to your people. This is what you want to do today. So would you do it by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would get all the glory, O Lord of hosts. I know you're a zealous God. I trust that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Kind of a simple way to think through the flow of the passage this morning. Three Ps, okay? I'm not trying to be cute. I think that's just how, that's how they came to my mind. So, number one, God's promise. Two, God's plan. And then finally, God's passion. God's promise, God's plan, God's passion. That'll be kind of a roadmap to help us get through this text and have some hooks in our minds God's promise. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So a simple Bible study question to start out with. Who's the her and why is she in anguish in the first place? The her, nope, it's not Mary. It's Israel, yeah. 
yeah, just figurative language describing Israel. Israel is being talked about here. I love the enthusiasm. You just dive in. I love it. I love it. Um, yes, so we're talking about Israel, but why is Israel in anguish? Well, the short end of it is that Israel feels contempt and anguish because of God's judgment being brought upon through the Assyrians. Okay? So the Assyrians, this vast army has come up against Israel and they're experiencing heavy-handed oppression right now. It's intense. They're being plundered. They're being taxed, you know. They're being pressed down, as we're going to see later. The yoke is upon them. Their staff is on their shoulder. The rod of oppression is breaking them down, okay. This is what they are experiencing. And so language like anguish is used Sometimes that language is used like the anguish of childbirth. Like it's just an extreme pain, an agony, something that at the time feels inescapable. There's another word in here, and that's the word contempt, right? In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, right? So this word contempt is built into this idea of anguish. In other words, God is humiliating them through this Assyrian invasion. They're being brought low, big time, because of this. And so they're in anguish, Israel's in anguish, because the Assyrians are there oppressing them. But then you ask the deeper question, why are the Assyrians there oppressing them? Well, because God sent them in judgment. Why did God send them in judgment? Easy answer, sin, right? It's sin. It's their own sin, the root cause of Israel's anguish and the contempt that humiliation they're experiencing is their own sin and their own rejection of God's appeal. Even early on in the book of um, Isaiah, you can see God making this appeal to Israel where he's telling them, for example, in chapter 2, verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light together. Let us walk this appeal. Walk in the light with me. Instead, they continue in their idolatry. They continue to go the opposite way of where God is calling them to go. And so it is their sin, their rebellion against God that has brought on his judgment. And that's why they're experiencing contempt and anguish right now. It's kind of a sobering note to begin on. I think we can relate to it more than we might think at first. In fact, all people can relate to it. But this is what's hard for us, right? Because without external bondage, people assume there's no bondage at all, right? If there's no external bondage, there's no Assyrians at our door, we, we assume that there's no bondage at all. But in a whole Bible way, you know, the Assyrians' judgment was just a picture of ultimate judgment. And the reason, the root cause of sin is really, of Israel, is similar to what it is for every human being throughout humanity. Our tendency to go do things our own way and do what is right in our own eyes. Our own tendency to wander, right? And rebel and to love darkness instead of light. This is true for all of us. We've all chosen darkness instead of light and are deserving of judgment. And, and even that language of contempt, because of our sin, we're, we deserve to be humiliated and to have God's judgment fall upon us. And so we might not have the external oppression of an Assyrian invasion, you know, to help us see bondage very tangibly, but the Bible describes our own slavery to sin as bondage. And in a sense, an oppressor. Because Satan uses it to keep us in that state. Our own flesh seizes upon it to keep us in a state of bondage. And so there is an agony. Israel is in anguish because of their own sin and the consequences of it. But there's this abrupt shift. You know, if you look back to verse 22 of chapter 8, it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness. And then, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There's this abrupt shift. You know, if you're reading through it in context, you almost get a little bit of whiplash. Like, what just happened here? She went from being in anguish to experiencing something very different. In other words, I think this this little whiplash we get between chapter 8 and chapter 9 is meant to say God has not given up on people who are in darkness. You think about Israel. They're sitting there and they know. They know they're there because of their own sin. They know they did it. They know they brought it on. The consequences came because of what they did and continued to do, right? And so they could be sitting there utterly hopeless, but this shift here is designed to create hope in their hearts to say, this God of light still sees you in your darkness, still sees you in your sin. He recognizes your anguish, even the fact that you're deserving of it, and he's not going to leave you without hope. And then he gives these pictures of hope. You know, starting with hearing maybe some of those familiar, are these familiar places in your mind? Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee of the nations. That one's probably a little more familiar. These are in the promised land of Israel. These are the, upper, the northernmost places, right? Regions, right? Galilee being that big overarching one. And so when they got hit by the Assyrian invasion, guess who got hit first since Assyrians coming from the north? These places, right? But we're just getting these pictures of hope here, right? The ones who were first hit with oppression are going to be the first ones to experience liberation. Like the first ones that are going to see that dark cloud of Assyria ascending upon them are going to be the ones that are going to see the bright light of a Messiah walking about in their midst. And how did he shine his light in Galilee? Think about the Gospels. Let your mind just run through the Gospels and all these things that he has done, all the things he did throughout that region, right? The crowds gathering and them watching him teach and heal and do all these things. Light has dawned. And so the hope continues. Verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It was their darkness, right? They're the ones that created it. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Now listen to these pictures of exuberant joy. They rejoice before you, these ones who are in anguish. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So he reaches for two of the most exciting moments. Like when there is a harvest that's unusual. This is an unusual harvest, an unusual yield. And the people are just jumping up and down because of how much grain, you know, is on the threshing floor. They're thrilled about it, right? The vats are filled, bursting. So this picture of joy at harvest, but not just joy at harvest, joy at experiencing plunder. So you imagine the arm of the soldiers going out, them having a victory and coming back just laden with cool stuff, right? All of these things that they got as part of their victory, their spoil, and the people who are back there are sharing in that victory, right? So they're celebrating it. These are just two of the pictures that Israel would have built into their psyche that expresses joy when you get spoil or when you have a great harvest. This is what the people are going to be like after a time of great anguish. God is going to do this, just pictures of hope. And remember, Israel's hearing this and they're sitting in their anguish. So this would be awakening hope in the heart. You might be sitting in your anguish right now. Let hope dawn in your heart. The pictures continue though, right? It's going to describe the oppression that's there because of the Assyrians and all the instruments that they might use to bring about that oppression. And the point is, is that, yep, the bondage is going to be broken and even the instruments are going to be destroyed. Look at that language there. Um, For the yoke, verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Come back to that phrase in a moment. 
for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The oppression is going to cease. Even the tools of oppression are going to be destroyed. You're going to be set free. You're going to be liberated from your bondage. And did you notice this? The language here? Follow with me a little bit. Okay, verse 2. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Or continuing still further, you have broken the rod of his oppressor. Right? The rod of his oppressor, you have broken. Notice even just the tenses. These are all like past tense things. Why is that? Why? It's because in God's mind, when God says he's going to do something, it's as good as done. This is a promise to turn anguish into joy. And when God says he's going to do something, he always follows through on his word. And so he's saying, you can count on it. It's as good as done right now. And this is fueling hope in their hearts. But it might be helpful as we transition to the second point to just think about the hint that is given here. You say, well, but that's great to make a big promise. Like it's a big promise in their situation right then but how is he going to do it? How is he going to fulfill this promise from turning from anguish to joy? And that's why I said I come back to that phrase at the end of verse four. You have broken this bondage as on the day of Midian. You hear Midian, you're meant to think Gideon, right? The days of judges, right? Remember the days of judges? They were some of the darkest days of Israel's history, Days that Israel's probably thinking about right now as they're in their own sin and rebellion, right? The cycles went like this in the book of Judges. You could basically trace it out by saying they would sin and rebel against God. They would cry out to him for mercy. God would send a deliverer in the form of a judge. He would set them free and then they would continue the whole thing again. Back to their apostasy, turning away from the Lord and it would just go over and over and over again. God would raise up a judge and he raised up Gideon as one of those judges in that day. And the story of Gideon that might stick in your mind is a time when uh, they were faced uh, with the oppression of the Midianites, right? This great horde, this massive army. They were way outnumbered. That was a problem, not for God though. And God actually wanted to make sure that Gideon's already wasn't too big. It wasn't even close to Midian's, right? But he wanted to make sure it wasn't big at all. And so he just had it dwindle down, dwindle down, dwindle down till they had a few handfuls of soldiers, right? And so you get this little hint here. How is God going to turn anguish into joy? How is God going to make good on this promise? I think the answer to that question is that God will use something small to do something really big. For to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. God, like he did back in Gideon's day, is going to deliver a people, but he's going to do it through something small, at least at first, right? Or to read part of the Christmas story, Luke 2, 10 to 12, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. Wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Israel's hope, and the hope of all peoples, is bound up in God fulfilling his promise. And that promise is going to be fulfilled, we're told here, through a child. And as we're going to see, not just any child. So that's God's promise, to turn anguish to joy, and we're hinted, going to use something small to do something big. Let's, let's flesh out his plan a little bit more, though. Verse 6, right? It says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Then you stop and ask the question, well, what's he going to be like? What's he going to be like? 
And what will life be like when the government's on his shoulders? Those are kind of two of the big questions we want to be able to ask. Let's start with that one. What's he going to be like? What will this ruler be like? This son that's given, the government's going to be upon his shoulders and his name, think character. This is what he's going to be like, right? Circle that word name in your mind or in your Bible. It's talking about the character of this child that's going to be a ruler. Another way to think about it is that these are the throne names of Jesus that are coming up. And you probably know them well. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are all describing what he's going to be like. These are going to be for our meditation. These are going to be the things that fuel our hope because we're looking for a ruler like this. We're longing for someone to lead us the way that this one will lead us. So here's some throne names of Jesus. Let's think about them together. You've heard them before. They're on a lot of plaques, and rightly so, right? Plastered up all over Christmas time. But I want us to be able to go, I can tell you what that means, okay? Wonderful counselor, okay? Jesus is the unspeakably wise king, and he is a counselor in his own right. Like, right, it says of the Lord God, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Answer, no one. The same can be said about Jesus. He doesn't need counsel from anyone. He is the wonderful counselor. He is God's son in human flesh. And it was really beautiful to me uh, this week. I was uh, visiting, some of you remember Mary, 92-year-old sister. Some of us got to go sing to her, not that, sing with her not that long ago. I was visiting her and uh, I was sharing with her the early gleanings of sermon prep, right? And, and there she is sitting in her chair and we're just engaging on the sermon. And so I had just unpacked this part about, about Jesus being the wonderful counselor. And uh, she just kind of interjects and just says, oh, he is the best counselor. Like, if he's this kind of counselor, we should go to him. It's so beautiful. It's so simple. But yes, go. we need to go to him. He's infinitely wise in his perspective on all things. And he's offering himself to us that way. As our counselor. Do you need a counselor? God uses means. You know, he uses people. But ultimately, go to him. Go to him. He is the wonderful counselor. And when we do, we're going to find miraculous results when the wisdom of Christ has followed. The lights come on that way. And I think that's why it's wonderful counsel. Like miraculous things happen through this counselor. There's none like him. That's why his teaching wowed everybody when he walked among us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. This is an awesome phrase. This phrase is only used to describe Yahweh himself, God himself, just another indicator that Christ is indeed divine. So this title is shared only with Jesus. Mighty God. Not only is he infinitely wise, he's powerful, right? So you need counsel? Go to him. You need help? (laughs) Go to him. Go to him. Jesus, in this context, he's able to break your bondage. So go to him. Rely on his power, his might. He's the wonderful counselor. He's almighty God. Then third, everlasting father. And this is the one out of all of them. When I hear this passage read or I read it myself or I start thinking about it, this one's always kind of just been a little like uh, like jarring in my mind because it feels weird to describe Jesus as, as all my, or everlasting father, right? But it's helpful to realize this is not a Trinitarian title, like Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? It's not referring to him as a, with a Trinitarian title here. What this is, in this context, it's a description of the nature of his rule. As he rules as king, what's his rule like? It's fatherly. In other words, this describes how he shows care for his subjects. You can see this in chapter 22. The similar kind of language is used. You don't have to turn there with me if you don't want to, but certainly welcome to. In chapter 22, verse 21, speaking about another king, but you can see this fatherliness of that role of king playing out. It says, And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand 
and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. In other words, this kingly rule is fatherly. And so it's one thing to have all the wisdom. It's another thing to have all the power. It's another thing to have the disposition to want to care and do good. Um, and, and notice, everlasting father. To do good perpetually, like without end, constantly. King Jesus will provide for and protect his people forever. He's the everlasting father. He is fatherly in his rule. Finally, he's the prince of peace. And this word peace, it's hard to fully bring it out. It's such a deep word in the Hebrew, shalom, right? You've heard that before, shalom. Because it has in the idea, baked into it, not just the idea of no more conflict. That's a huge part of it, but it's not all of it. It also has this aspect of like wholeness or completeness. You know, I think if we know ourselves even a little bit, we realize we're not whole, right? We're longing to be whole. We're ultimately longing for peace, right? We're longing when we are going to be fully like Christ in our own character and when the world around us is going to be put at rest. And so he's described as the prince of peace, that is the source of peace in the society of the redeemed. We all look to him as this. So I hope that you can see when we look at these these kind of throne names of Jesus that he's no ordinary human being. He's the son of David, yes, but he's also the son of God. There's no ruler like him, and we get this extremely encouraging news, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Whose shoulders are they on in Israel right now? What does it feel like to them? Assyria, right? The Assyrians, its government's on their shoulders and they're under like a tyrannical rule. This is miserable. It's bondage, right? It's anguish. They're brought low in humiliation. But the encouraging note here is the government's going to be upon his shoulders, upon Jesus' shoulders. And we need to hear that this morning because um, we are often too weary to rejoice because we are too busy pridefully bearing our own burdens. The government's meant to be on his shoulders. And so he has these eternally brown shoulders. We're meant to roll our burdens upon him, to cast them on the Lord, and to watch, maybe not immediately, but in time, our joy return. I love this line uh, from a song that Karn um, pointed out to me by Sarah Groves. And it says, the world on his shoulders in my easy load. I think that's the sense we're meant to get when we hear this phrase, the government shall be upon his shoulders. The shoulders of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. This is a tremendous joy to be under this kind of leadership. This is what we long for. And Some of David's last words are really apt in describing the blessing of being under this kind of leadership. When he says in 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4, it says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout forth from the earth. In other words, it just has this nourishing, life-giving effect when you're under a leader like that. And this is a word, this is a promise saying, your anguish is going to be turned to joy because I'm going to give you a leader like that. To us, a child is born. To, To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. But here's the nagging question. Well, when's his kingdom going to be established? Because it sure doesn't feel like the kingdom is on his shoulders It feels like the kingdom's on some other people's shoulders in some ways, right? In our experience. How is he going to establish his kingdom? And this is where the greatest irony in all of history comes into play. Ironically, the cross is where Jesus began to reign. His reign began there. And it was there where he took the biggest burdens of the entire kingdom upon his shoulders. 
Israel's biggest burden was not Assyria. It might have been their biggest felt need at the time to get rid of Assyria. Their biggest burden, if they had eyes to see, was their own sin and their own rebellion against God. And that was the point. You know, they were, and you can kind of sympathize. You read the Old Testament prophecies like this, you can understand why so many in Jesus' day were just only expecting a military ruler. He said he was going to break the rod of iron. You know, he was going to break the bondage. He will. But when you realize the bondage was not just because of this external thing happening to you, it's because of an internal thing. It's because of who you are and what you love. And that's the point is like, he's come to break that. To break the deepest, most foundational bondage in your life. Because when that bondage is broken, true liberation happens. The truth shall set you free. And so he comes to take the kingdom upon his shoulders, but he does it in part by fulfilling all righteousness and satisfying justice. This is important because it's going to say that he builds his kingdom, it says, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. But for his subjects to reflect this, he has to satisfy justice and he has to fulfill righteousness. He fulfills righteousness by living the perfect life that we failed to live. He satisfies justice by dying on the cross for sinners. God's wrath, it's a just wrath being poured out, just like the Israelites deserved it. And they got a foretaste of the ultimate judgment through the judgment of Assyria. Like every single one of us, we're meant to take that as a warning. This is the judgment to come, right? But the point of the cross was that Jesus was willing to take that punishment for us that we deserved. Or put it another way from our text, he was willing to experience contempt, to be willing to be humiliated for our sin. And he was willing to experience anguish. And you could say our anguish. Upon, upon him was the chastisement, that discipline that brought us peace. And the anguish was real. We saw Jesus in agony in the garden, sweating drops of blood, right? There was an agony before the cross. What do you think the cross was like? So when you think about it, and we're going to come to the Lord's table soon, and it's, we're going to talk about his body being broken and his blood being shed, and we need to go, he agonized for me. Because the root cause of my agony is my sin. And the only way for bondage to be broken is through faith in Jesus Christ. We have to turn from our rebellion and we have to put our trust in this ruler. So this is not just time for sentimental things to happen during Advent. This is a time to go. Our whole hope and the hope, you know, all of history hinges on this moment where God makes good on his promise to turn anguish to joy by giving his son to agonize for a people who in themselves wouldn't agonize over their own sin, right? He agonized because he understood the full weight of what our sin did. And some of us, you know, we just go, God, you know, our consciences are actually pretty alive, you know, and you may be sitting here and I just want, I don't want to miss you because this text is meant to give hope to people who sat in darkness because of their own sin. And so you could be sitting there and be like, but I caused it all. I'm like, that's the point. Like some of the most encouraging things in this text just comes down to this. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. Thought about that? To us, for us. Like, could you be like, well, like for me? Yes, you. <laughs> You're no different than the Israelites in this sense. Your own sin caused the agony. And God sent a ruler to set you free by his blood. And so you can read these verses that can end up on coffee mugs, but I'm hoping that they're going to be in, you know, emblazoned on your own heart today. For to us, for to you, a child is born. And for you, a son is given. It's for all peoples. Whoever will repent of their sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus, he's for them. This good news was spread throughout. That's why we're in the book of Acts, right? This news has to get out everywhere. God has made good on his promise. 
to turn anguish to joy by giving us a ruler. And he has established his kingdom in part by dying on the cross, satisfying justice, upholding righteousness. If that's written on the bottom of his throne, now the whole reign is going to be marked by these things. And that leads us to kind of our final kind of home stretch of meditation here. Is if we know what he's like, because if we know what he's like, know what this ruler's like, we know how he established his kingdom, right? Laid the foundation for it. I want to ask like, whoa, what can we expect life to be like in his kingdom? And I think that's where the rest of the text goes. And I'm not trying to be cute here, but three more Ps to help us tell the home stretch. Looking at verses, verse seven, okay? What can you expect this life to be like in his kingdom? You can expect it to be perfect. You can expect it to be peaceful and you expect it to be permanent. I'm trying to give you hooks because these things are meant to be used to fuel our faith as I'll talk about in a moment. It's going to be perfect. Oh, that day when the character of the king becomes the character of the subjects. That day, it's happening more and more now as we're transformed, right? It's going to happen in full when he comes back again. The character of the king is going to be translated to all the character of the subjects. Righteousness and justice will be perfectly upheld in every single heart. Everybody doing their part. No one dropping the ball. No one fumbling. Justice and righteousness perfectly established and upheld. That's what we get to look forward to. The time is coming when the government will be in perfect hands. <laughs> Do you let that settle in? Like, that's kind of encouraging in our day, isn't it? I'm just saying. The government will be completely in his hand. He must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And what God is doing right now is subduing hearts, spreading his kingdom one heart at a time. And he is doing this and he's going to do that until he comes again. There's going to come a day when that door of salvation is shut. But for now, he is bringing in new subjects, citizens of this very happy kingdom to come. And uh, when that time comes and the government is in perfect hands, there'll be no more need for for, uh, term limits. Will there be? Like, right now, I kind of thank God for him. I'm just saying, like, it could go different ways, you know? And it really doesn't, like, regardless of what way it goes, it's not going to give us what we need, ultimately, right? Does it matter who's in that Oval Office? Can they provide perfection? Isn't that what you long for? Can it provide peace? Maybe a false sense of security, but not real peace. Can it provide permanence? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, it cannot, right? We are longing for this. There's going to be no need for term limits. He's established on his throne. He's about to consummate his kingdom by coming back again, and he's going to reign forevermore. Isaiah 32, 17 brings out these ideas well when it says, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. Like him establishing it on the cross and then finally like baking it into all of his people perfectly. Like the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. It's Isaiah 32, 17. So we can expect perfection, righteousness, justice. I know we can hardly imagine it right now, but we're supposed to try. We're supposed to think about when everything is rightly ordered when everything is just and done right, right? And everything is righteous. And all of our instincts, impulses, and desires are marked by these things. And I'm just here to tell you today that that's what's going to happen. And it's meant to give tremendous hope. It's also going to be peaceful. Not just perfect, but that perfection in terms of justice and righteousness is going to lead to peace. You can't have peace, Right? can't have ultimate peace without perfection right that's why everything is so disrupted all the time we're so far from that but yet you also see 
there's certain momentum gaining in your own heart as a believer where certain old instincts are being subdued and new godlike realities are, are starting to surface in the heart. This is, this is Jesus. He's establishing his reign. He's bringing it to pass. But we're waiting for a day of perfect peace. Shalom. We're waiting for that wholeness and where there's no conflict anymore. And you hear this phrase, and unfortunately, it's a rare phrase in the Old Testament because most of the kings were bad, right? You read Israel's history like, was there a good king? I can't remember. They're just kind of lost in the ocean of bad kings, right? But when there's a good king, you hear this rare refrain afterwards, but it's beautiful and even refreshing when you hear it, right? There's peace on every side. And there was peace on every side. That's what happens when the prince of peace is the source of peace. And this leads to the last one. It's permanent. Perfection leads to peace. And we're like, oh, we really enjoy this. And like I start, I began this way by saying, our joys are so short-lived in this life. And so I'm just trying to give you hope. Like the day is going to come when they're not (laughs) short-lived. They're eternally sustained. Like this is what's going to happen very soon. And Jesus might be pleased to interrupt our Christmas festivities and usher in the fullness of his kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus. Even saying it makes me even happier. Um, it's going to be permanent. You know, people would walk on eggshells when a good king was about to die. Uzziah, um, King Uzziah reigned in chapter 6, right? He was reigning for like 50, 50 years. There was so much peace, so much prosperity. There was peace on every side, but it was temporary. The point is, when Jesus reigns in full, it's going to be permanent. It's going to be permanent. No one's going to be walking on eggshells. This king's going to never die. His term's never going to run out. There will be peace on every side, and it will not be short-lived. The peace and prosperity under Jesus' rule will never end. This is not wishful thinking. This is what's going to happen. Our deepest longings will come to pass. I hope you noticed here as we're looking through this that, that that the character of Jesus just permeates the nature of his reign. Like it just reflects him. It just reflects him. Everlasting father, this peace without end. And so one of the big things I think God wants us to walk away with this morning in terms of what we can do this Advent season and throughout our lives for that matter is to have faith in his promises. To have faith in his promises. These are not meant to be mere sentimental thoughts. This is fuel for our faith. Now, faith, often we think of faith, we think in really vague kind of ways of just generally trusting God. One thing God's reminded me of um, personally, even over this last year, is that faith is meant to be, it's meant to grab hold of something. God's given us the Bible with tons of promises and tons of truths so that we can have our footing, right? So we can grab hold of things and have stability. And so when we want to exercise faith, we grab onto concrete things from God's word. And so I'm giving you all these cute little peas, right, in the sermon, but I'm like, here's some stuff to grab onto, right? Like this week, when you're starting to feel your heart going to turmoil and you're starting to spin out again, this is where you stop. And you stop listening to yourself. We do too much of that, right? We're not the wonderful counselors, right? right? We need to stop listening to ourselves. We need to start preaching to ourselves, right? Make a note to ourselves, kind of like a post-it note on our lives. Okay, trust. What? Trust that when Jesus establishes the fullness of his reign, it's going to be perfect. You start thinking about your imperfect circumstances, recognize them, call them what they are, but then start rejoicing in the fact that perfection is coming. It is coming. When you find your heart disrupted or your home disrupted, you start thanking God that this reign is going to be a reign of peace under the Prince of Peace. Like, believe that. It will pull you out of a lot. We have to fight for this. It's a battle of the mind and the heart in so many ways. You remind yourself that when a joy escapes your grasp again, and it was just short, so short-lived, and you just kind of grieve that, go, ha, the day is coming. 
when it's going to be sustained. My joy is going to be sustained. It's going to be permanent. And so we need to preach to ourselves. And um, we need to know that when God makes promises, they're as good as done. And so that's what faith does. It recognizes what God already recognizes, that when he says something, it's as good as done. It doesn't even have to happen fully yet for the faith to grab on it and go, okay, and get really happy about it, or at least a little more peaceful. So this is what this text is designed to do, to, to encourage and fuel our faith, to give us hope. But that hope comes by faith, guys. Like some of you are just like, I just want the hope you were talking about. It comes by faith. There's no shortcuts. There's not shortcuts for me. There's not shortcuts for you. But there's a whole bunch of handholds, things that can, we can get our hands on, and a bunch of them even from this text that we can feast our souls on and help us get the stability that we need to pray for these things in our own prayer closets and together. We encourage one another with these truths. So finally, you have God's promise to turn anguish into joy. He's going to do that, his plan, to raise up a ruler that's unlike any ruler, okay? That's going to usher in a time of perfection, peace, and permanence. And how will we know that this is going to happen? Last line in the last verse, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love it. What a great way to end. Ultimate explanation, the ultimate explanation for why this promise is coming to pass is that you have a zealous God. Jesus came. (laughs) It actually happened in history. He came because God is a zealous God. Jesus is going to come again at the end of history. God's going to see to it because he's a zealous God. He's going to bring these things to pass. His plan is in motion. We talk about his promise. It's something he did, something he's doing, and something he will do at the end. We're meant to look at what he's done already and let that fuel our confidence for what he remains to do on his own good timeline, right? And thankfully, our ultimate hope does not depend on our zeal, but on his. Yeah, because our zeal can be, it can kind of, you know, fizzle out a little bit, can't it? Um, even the most zealous among us, I'm like, boy, we're gung-ho, and then, right? God's zeal is constant. And he is going to bring about everything that he said he was going to do. And that's our hope over this Christmas season. And so we can grab hold of these promises and be confident. We can rejoice in the prosperity, the perfection, and the permanence of the reign we enjoy under Christ, especially in light of the bondage that we once knew. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you to take time to remember what it was like before. As the elements are being passed out, remember what it was like when you were in your bondage to sin and under the rule of Satan. And your own flesh completely dominated you because you didn't have the Spirit. Remember what that was like. And then, Consider what it's like now, what the Lord has done and is doing in your life, you know? And then dream. (laughs) Take this time to dream about what it will be like in the future when our zealous God brings all of his promises to pass. We're meant to do this at the Lord's Supper, right? We look back on what Christ has done. We enjoy him spiritually in the present by his spirit. And we look forward to a day when we're going to be with him in person. And then the reign of the Prince of Peace will be fully realized. And then our hearts will finally be at rest. And then our joys won't be so fleeting. But until then, we take up the cup. We break the bread. And we seek his face earnestly. Because just as God promised that he would come, he promised he's going to come again. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that because of your zeal, not one person has to sit in darkness or stay in darkness. Lord, I thank you for your zeal 
that has broken the power of Satan in our lives and has dethroned our idols. I thank you for your zeal, Lord, that has given us peace, very real peace with you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I thank you that because of the reign of the Prince of Peace, even right now, we're experiencing more peace. But Lord, even with the things we have tasted, we must acknowledge, Lord, that we're longing for so much more. Our hearts are sick in many ways, Lord, because we, we know that nothing's perfect here. And peace is often hard to find here. And that longing for permanence certainly not found here. But we thank you, Lord, that the fullness of these things will come to pass. Lord, I pray for each of your people here that you'd help us to grab hold of these truths and believe them. Let them pull our hearts and even preach our hearts out of hopelessness, out of despair. Help them to preach our hearts out of pride. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be a happy and hopeful people. More so after remembering more of the fullness of what it means that to us a child is born and to us a son is given. Lord, as we come to the table, we thank you. We're so thankful to have a place at this table, Lord. And we know that it's because a son was given. It's not because we earned a place at the table. It's not because we were more special than someone else, some other image bearer. But it's because of your sheer grace. We are people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And on us, this light has shone. We thank you for the dawning of the king. Oh, Lord Jesus, Prince of Peace, we thank you that you're with us by your spirit. Pray that you'd be glorified as we think about where we were in our bondage and what you've done to break our bondage and what it's going to be like to finally be fully under your reign. We long for that. We long for your perfection to permeate your kingdom and for your peace to be our peace and for all that to be permanent. So come, Lord Jesus. If you want to interrupt our Christmas festivities, we say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Wrap up all of history. We thank you that you will come because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In Jesus' name, amen.